0: We are continuing our sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We're getting pretty close to the end. We have only six more sermons left in this Gospel. And uh, that means we're getting to the end of the the story, which is so familiar to us. We've heard these stories uh, multiple times over the years. And my concern for us this morning is that our familiarity will actually prevent us from hearing God's Word. And so well, my kids are sometimes like this with me. When I start to tell them a story, if they've heard it before, they'll say, dad, 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 we, we, we know this, we've heard this. And I'll say, I know, but you need to hear it again, all right? Like there may be some point that I'm going to emphasize that you've missed before, or maybe it's just a really important story. You need to get this. So you need to hear this story. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. Don't be like my kids in this way, all right? Don't say, oh, yeah, 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 we know this one. We've heard this one all of our lives. We, we've got this one mastered. Instead, my encouragement to you is listen with fresh ears and with the heart that says, Lord, what do you want me to hear here? And how do you want me to respond? So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Mark 14 and please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I am going to read verses 26 through 42. And just a reminder, this is the very word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our familiarity with this story will not prevent us from hearing from You and hearing Your Word. I pray we will not be like the disciples in this passage who couldn't stay awake. Instead, I pray that You will keep us alert so that we respond the way You want us to respond, for Your glory, for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I have had a couple of weeks to wrestle with this particular passage and meditate on it, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been good, for me. And by the way, I would suggest and commend this passage to you. Uh, you know, everybody needs a passage to chew on and wrestle with and think about and have your mind go through. So if you don't have one right now, take this text and let that be your text for the next few weeks. There are endless lessons here. There are endless insights here. I'm going to point out three and, and some others along the way. The first one is this. God is in control. There are a lot of terrible things that are happening and are about to happen in our passage. Jesus is struggling with this. He's asking for this cup, this hour to pass that he might not have to experience it. And this, This might cause us to say, you know, it really does seem like evil is having its way here. It really does seem like what's happening is evil is winning. But there are all these clues in the text telling us, no, God is very much in control here. So for example, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They've just taken the Lord's Supper. We saw this two weeks ago when we looked at verses 22-25. through 25. We said that meal was the first divinely ordained Lord's Supper meal and it is the last divinely ordained Passover meal. And one of the traditions at Passover was to sing a hymn, a psalm. So they sung a hymn, they sung a psalm. And then they left the city. You take the Passover in the city. They leave the city. They're heading back to the Mount of Olives. And as they're walking, Jesus gives them some really alarming news in verse 27. He says, hey guys, you're all going to fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You're all going to fall away. The the Greek word there for fall away is skandalizo, where we get our word Scandal. You're all going to be scandalized. And you're all going to fall away. And so Jesus is making a very specific prediction. You're all going to. Right? Just like we saw him make a very specific prediction in Mark 13 when he said the temple's going to be destroyed. Very specific. The temple will be destroyed. You guys will fall away. And notice in verse 27, he says, For it is written. So he sees these events as being fulfilling certain passages of Scripture. And the one he references in particular is Zechariah 13, 7, which says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now let's ask this very important question. Who is the I here in this verse? Who is it that's going to strike down the shepherd? And of course, the answer is it's God. God is in control. God is the one striking down the shepherd. God is the one sending his son to the cross. God is the one orchestrating this. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, that Judas is off the hook or the religious authorities are off the hook uh, or or the the Romans are off the hook. They're all morally culpable, all morally responsible. What they did is evil and wrong, and they shouldn't have done it. But nevertheless, God is perfectly in control, sending his son, striking down his son. We also see his control in verse 28 After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised up. He's confident. He's in control. He knows the plan. Guys, I'm telling you the plan. I'm going to die, and I will be raised up, and I'm going to go before you. I'll meet you in Galilee, and he does that. John 21 lets us know about the time in Galilee. Peter responds and says, you know, this might be true of these other guys falling away, but I'm not going to. I would never do that, and Jesus says, Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows twice. Now notice how specific that is. Not just you do. I have a feeling about you, Peter. This is specific. This is very specific prediction. You will deny me three times and it's going to happen before the rooster crows twice. And of course, we know the end of the story. We know it happens just like Jesus says. But Peter's adamant. It'll never happen. I'll die before that happens. And of course, it happens just like Jesus says. Look at the end of verse 41. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus knows what's happening. He says, guys, you hear that noise? That's the crowd coming to get me. Judas is leading that crowd. How does he know that? He's in control. This is not shocking him. It's not taking him by surprise. He's not saying, ooh, I hope that's not what I think it is. He knows. He's in control. There have been a couple of times lately when the snow has come, and it hasn't been too much snow, but the conditions have been such that the roads are kind of extra slick, extra icy. Anybody else experience this in addition to me? There have been at least two times I've turned onto a road not expecting to lose control, and I did. You know, I just kept sliding across Thankfully, nobody there, no people, no cars. And, you know, it was a fine. It turned out fine. But, boy, a few minutes later, if you're like me, that adrenaline rush <laughs> kind of flows through your body, and you feel it, and it makes you alert, you know. You're like, I'm, I'm going to slow down and drive more cautiously, probably what I should have been doing in the first place. But uh, it's not a fun feeling to be out of control, not sure where's this vehicle going to stop. You know, And what am I going to hit between now and then? That's not fun to feel out of control. We like to be in control. And I want to point out, this night, I would argue more than any other night in human history, it the evidence sure does seem like evil is having its day. It sure does seem like God is not winning. It sure does seem like evil is, is, is what's in control and what's winning. But we learn the clues in the text are there, I think, for the very specific reason of telling us, no, 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 no. I know it seems that way. I know it feels that way. But God is in control. Notice this. Notice that. Notice him predicting. Notice him telling. Notice the confidence. Notice he, he, he's saying this is fulfilling scripture. The shepherd must be struck down by the father. Jesus is very much in control. Now, why is that significant? Let me point out a couple of reasons why it's significant. First of all, it's a good reminder to us just how deep the love of Jesus is for us. How how deep the Father's love is for us. That He would do this for us. He's not just standing back saying, okay, I'll allow that to happen for you guys this time. He's orchestrating this. He's in control. He's planned this. He's planned this for us. That's how much He loves us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Listen to this. If God was willing to go to this extent for you how confident can you be this morning that He's going to finish what He started and He's going to love you to the end? Right. So, so we, we, we we're reminded here we learn here God loves us so much He orchestrated the death of His Son for us. Another thing we can learn here is the next time it feels like in your life things are spiraling out of control. You feel like that driver on ice who you're just hoping the thing will get settled down. Maybe your life feels that way right now. If it doesn't, I'm guessing it will at some point. The next time you feel, boy, life's out of control. Where's God? Evil seems to be winning as I look around at the world, as I look at my personal life. Here's my encouragement to you. Come back to this passage and meditate on this passage. The passage I would argue when it seems like God is the the least in control and it seems like things are just absolutely unraveling, spiraling out of control. It seems like evil is sure having its way. And notice all the clues in the scripture telling you God's in control. He's got this. He's orchestrating this. And let that be a reminder to you, he's still in control today. Just like he was on this night when it seems like He's not in control, though He is. So today, even though it might not feel like it in your personal life, as you look around at world events, God is in control. We learn that from this passage. Secondly, Jesus' followers are weak. I think this is a principle that we're supposed to learn from this passage. Look at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, "'Sit here while I pray.'" The word Gethsemane literally means an oil press. So it was an oil press uh, there, the Mount of Olives, just east of the city. John's Gospel refers to it as a garden. So over time, it's come to be referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane. Today, there are several gardens of Gethsemane that you can visit. There's a Roman Catholic one, an Armenian one, a Greek Orthodox one, and a Russian Orthodox one. And I visited one of those. I think it was the Roman Catholic one. We don't know where the original garden of Gethsemane was. We know the general location, right? And we know Jesus goes there with his disciples. Judas, of course, is not with them. And uh, he, he he tells the disciples, you guys stay here. And he takes three with him. Look at verse 33. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here And watch. I think it's really fascinating. Verse 33 tells us he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Almost like the distressed and the troubled hasn't yet happened. He hasn't yet been distressed and troubled. But now, now he starts to experience this greatly distressed and troubled. It's emphatic. Not just distressed, not just troubled, both. Why do you include both words? Because he's trying to communicate. It's bad. He's struggling. Luke uses the word agony. He's agonizing. Verse 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful. In other words, I am experiencing deep sorrow, even unto death, which I think means I feel like death. I feel such sorrow, I could die. And he says, Guys, I want you to stay here and I want you to watch. Stay awake and watch, and be there for me during this time. I, I need you guys. Right? I'm, I'm struggling here. I need you. Watch with me. Have we seen the command to watch before? We saw it three times in Mark 13. We said that's the main point of the chapter. Watch. Stay awake. Stay alert. And now, Jesus, it's time. Like this, is, this is the time. I need you guys to be here for me. Watch. Stay awake. And sometimes people just need you to be there for them. They don't necessarily need you to say anything. I just need you to be here with me. That's what Jesus is saying. I need you guys to be here for me. right? I'm experiencing something I've not experienced before. I need you to stay awake and be here for me. He goes just beyond where they are. Luke tells us he's a stone's throw away. So he's close enough where the disciples can hear him praying. How do we know? Because they record what he prays. And they write it down and we have it here. So they hear what he's praying. Verse 37, he came back where he left them and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? I think this is a rhetorical question. Are you serious right now? Are you the same person that just told me you'd die before you deny me and you'll never fall away? Even if all these other guys do. And now in my great moment, of the one time I'm asking you to stay awake for one hour, you can't stay awake for an hour? Seriously? Right? Look at verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus gives the same command. Stay awake, stay alert, watch and pray. But this time he appeals for their sakes, for your sake. The first time he's like, stay awake for me now he's like stay awake for yourselves so you don't fall into temptation let's ask this question temptation to do what what might they be tempted to do and the answer is according to verse 27 to fall away don't fall away stay awake stay alert don't fall away pray so that you're not tempted to fall away For, he says, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, this is another great principle that unfortunately we don't have time to focus on. But this is a great principle you see in Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I do want to do. There's a part of me that knows what's right and I want to do it. And then there's another part of me that somehow just can't seem to do it. There's a weakness, the flesh. They're tired. It's late at night. It's dark. They just had a big meal. There's no lights, no electricity, you know? A lot easier to sleep than to pray. Jesus says, I know. The Spirit's willing. You guys want to. I know there's a want to there. I'm not accusing you of not wanting to do the right thing and stay awake and stay alert. But the flesh is weak. It's a great principle. Verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. So Jesus goes away a second time and notice it says he's praised the same words. I think that's interesting to meditate on. Jesus prayed the same thing. Same words. You ever feel like you're saying the same words in prayer? It's okay. Jesus said the same words in prayer. Right? How do the disciples know that he said the same words? Because they can hear him. They can hear him agonizing in prayer as he's laid out on the ground praying to God. But he comes back and he finds them asleep, and this time he wakes them up, and it says they can't even say anything. They can't even respond. They don't respond. They don't say anything. I can imagine it's like, you know, when you take a really deep nap, Sunday afternoon nap, and somebody wakes you up and it's like, where am I and what is going on? And you can't even think straight. You don't even say anything. You just sort of sit there, and just, oh. I get the sense that's kind of what's going on here. They don't even respond. They don't even say, oh, sorry. You know, they're just they're half asleep. What's going on? Think about this they're going to do it again. Verse 41. It's going to happen a third time. Right? And think about how Jesus has been there for them. This whole ministry. He's never really asked them to do anything quite like this. We've never seen Him come to them in need. Like, I need you guys to be here for me and with me. And the one time He does, they, they fail Him. And their failure is highlighted and emphasized by the fact that they're so adamant they're not going to fail Him. Right? And it's a, it's, a, it's a reminder to us, first of all, this is one of those great examples in the Bible that you can point to when somebody says, I think these guys just made this up. I think the Bible is just written by men and made up. Okay, let's, let's say for the sake of the argument, you're right. Would the people who made it up write themselves into the story doing this, right?
1: Like this is embarrassing,
0: right? Right? The leaders of the church, the writers of Scripture, in the one night that Jesus asked them to do the one thing, just stay awake for one hour, can't do it, three times they fail? You know, if you're going to make it up, you're not going to write yourself into the story like this. You're going to be like, well, we stayed awake. It was hard, but we stayed awake. We were there for Him. You know? We endured to the end. If you're going to make it up, you're not going to write yourself into it this embarrassingly. Right? So, I think it's a testimony to the truthfulness of the Bible. But I also think, It's encouraging to us. This story should encourage us. First of all, I think we're a lot like the disciples. I think I'm a lot like the disciples. I think I've messed up a number of times. I think I've been like them and made pretty strong commitments that I've not quite lived up to. Boy, I'm going to start reading the Bible every day, 6 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to wake up and read the Bible every day. And that lasts for a while, like a few weeks maybe. And then, oh, I better hit that snooze button. And then it's not too long before you're back into the old routine, the old habit. You know, how many times have you said, I'm going to start praying. I'm going to really start carving out time and praying. And a few weeks later, you're back to normal. I'm going to to start sharing the gospel. I'm really going to do it. I'm committed now. I'm serious. And then over time, it's failure. Guess what? You're in good company. You're not the only person who's made these great commitments and failed to keep them. The disciples did the same thing. We've all done this. Right? You ever said to God, Boy, if you'll just get me out of this situation that I'm in, I will never do blank again. Or I will always do blank. You know, I'll always go to church. You'll just get me out of this. Right? You, I feel, hopefully I'm not the only person in the room who's made these great promises, profound promises, and failed to keep them. And if that's you too, guess what? You're in good company. The disciples did the same thing. This is also a good reminder to us that we are ministering to people who are weak. You are discipling people, ministering people. have people in your Bible studies and there may be times when you're sort of ready to write them off. Like, boy, I'm done with him. I'm done with her. She's weak. Well, she probably is weak. But so were the disciples and so were you. And at some level, so were we all. And it's a good reminder to us. And, and, And we're also reminded here that God uses weak people. In powerful ways. Jesus could have come back and said, you know what, guys? My goodness. If you're going to be the guys who are going to be the founders of the churches and writers of Scripture, I need to find a new team. You know, you guys can't even stay awake with me at my greatest moment of need. I think I'm going to go find some different options. Different disciples. Different people. People who are more likely to stay awake. God uses unlikely, weak people in powerful ways. He has a pattern of doing this. He's going to use these men... To found churches, plant churches, write scripture. These are the apostles. This is it. The guys who are falling asleep on Jesus at his greatest moment of need are the very people that God uses as the foundation of the New Testament church. Wow. And that's kind of the pattern that God follows. He uses unlikely, unexpected, weak people. Abraham lied and was old. Jacob was a deceiver. Leah was apparently unattractive. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were young. David was a murderer and adulterer. Jonah ran from God. The Samaritan woman was divorced multiple times. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Lazarus was dead. Talk about being disqualified from ministry. (laughs) Qualification number one, you have to have a pulse. right? And God uses Lazarus. The disciples fell asleep and fell away. And the question for you and me this morning is, what about you? What's your excuse? You know, what's your weakness that in your mind is disqualifying you from allowing God to use you? God delights in taking people you'd never expect in a million years and using them because they recognize their need and their weakness. The, the pattern of the Bible is not God using these incredibly faithful people. The pattern of the Bible is God being faithful to use incredibly weak people. And He uses them to highlight His glory. And He'll use you. So what's your weakness? Don't let your weakness prevent you from allowing God to to use you. This brings us to the third truth I want you to notice here. And that is Jesus is faithful. We've already said He's in control. He knows what's coming. He knows... The, he's the shepherd who's going to be struck down, verse 27. He knows it's coming from God. He knows he's going to go it alone. He knows his disciples are going to fall away. He knows he's going to have to do this for people who are not willing to stand up for him. And yet he remains faithful to the mission. Once again, I just want to highlight verse 33. He's greatly distressed and troubled. Luke says he's agonizing. He is sorrowful unto death, verse 34. Verse 35 he throws himself down on the ground in desperation and prays, If it's possible, let the cup pass. If it's possible, let this hour pass. Now, we have to ask this question. Why is he so troubled? Why is he in such agony? Why is he sorrowful unto death? Because we've seen other people face death and not respond like this. Let's be honest. We've seen Christians throughout church history who have been burned at the stake and crucified, and crucified upside down, and yet they faced it very heroically, almost kind of like, bring it on. You know, like, I want to die for, for Christ and show God's glory in this way. There's a pattern of, of this. You see this. So why is Jesus responding like this? And you can't say, well, he didn't know it was coming. It took him by surprise. No way. He's been telling us from day one this is why he's here. He didn't gain some new information. Right? And he not only knows it's coming, he's been saying all along, it has to happen. Like, this this, this must happen. This is the plan. This is the Father's will. This is why I'm here. I must die. I must suffer. I must be handed over. So, so if he knows it's going to happen, and he knows it must happen, and he's been telling him all along, how, how do we explain the agony? The, the How do we explain this? What's going on? I think the answer is, verse 36, the nature of the cup. What is this cup that he's about to drink? The cup is a cup of God's wrath. That's the image that's used in the Old Testament to describe the pouring out of God's wrath against sin. And I think Jesus is starting to taste that. He's starting to experience what that's going to be like. To truly taste and experience the cup. And I think this story of Jesus in the garden, maybe more than any other story, I just this hit me the past couple of weeks, kind of profoundly. This story gives us incredible insight into what happens at the cross. What exactly is happening at the cross? What exactly is going on there that makes it so important and profound and we sing about it and talk about it? It makes it the central event of the Christian faith, the the cross and and the resurrection. What is it that's happening at the cross that causes Jesus to react and respond like this in the moments leading up to it? See, If you want to know what's happening at the cross, look at the garden and get a sense, get a taste of what's about to happen. Jesus is not troubled and agonizing solely because of the physical death and the physical pain that's going to come, though that's certainly a part of it. He's agonizing because of what else is going to happen, the cup that He's going to drink. And that cup that He's going to drink involves taking our sin, bearing our sin at the cross. We see that, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gets treated like a sinner. Jesus becomes sin. He doesn't become a sinner. But 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him to be sin. He's bearing our sin. The Son was treated like a sinner so that sinners like us could be treated like sons. That's the gospel. It's incredible. That's why the cross is so important, and, and answering this question is so important. This is not some uh, you know advanced type of question. This is just basic one-on-one, foundational, fundamental Christianity. What is happening at the cross? What is happening while Jesus is dying? This is crucial. This is the difference between understanding the Christian faith or not. Jesus is taking my sin on Himself. My sin that I deserve to pay the penalty for, He is bearing it for me. And He not only takes my sin, because He takes my sin, that also means He's taking the wrath, the punishment, the penalty that was mine. For example, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus is being cursed at the cross. Jesus is bearing the penalty and the weight of my sin. He's experiencing the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath is being set against the sun. That's what's happening at the cross. And that's why Jesus cries out, Mark 15, 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it's not just any old death. It is the death. Jesus is experiencing the death at the cross. The wrath of God for sin. And I don't think it's any coincidence that this sorrow that he starts to experience comes through prayer. Jesus is with the Father, communing with the Father in prayer. I don't think you and I can appreciate this because we don't commune with the Father the way Jesus does. He's one with the Father. He has existed throughout eternity with the Father. He always has had this perfect relationship with the Father. And as Jesus is praying, this perfect communion with the Father, he's starting to get a taste of Of what it's going to be like to be cut off, to become accursed by God as He bears our sin at the cross. And He asked the disciples, Will you guys stay awake with me as I start to feel this and experience this? Will you guys be there for me? And of course, they're not. Why does He need them to be there for Him? He needs them there for accountability because He's being tempted. There's a temptation at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. There's a temptation at the end of Jesus' ministry. What's the temptation? Abort the mission. That's how Satan tempts him. You're the son of God. You shouldn't be suffering. You shouldn't experience this. The temptation is walk away. How do we know that? Because Jesus actually prays for the cup to pass. I'm, I'm praying that this cup would pass. But of course, he succeeds. He stands up under the temptation. I think it's also helpful to contrast and compare this temptation with the first temptation that happened with Adam and Eve. Both take place in a garden, right? Here's the difference. Adam is told, you can eat from any tree, but just don't eat from this one. And in the day that you eat from this one, you will be cut off from me. You'll experience my wrath. Jesus is told, You must eat from this tree. You must drink of this cup. I'm calling you to come experience this cross. And if you do, you will actually be cut off from me. See the difference? Adam is given an almost simple, I mean, it's pretty simple. I can eat from any tree except for the one, and I'm warned, don't eat from it. In the day that I do, I'll be cut off. Fairly simple. Jesus is given a nearly impossible task. Do come eat from this tree. Do come drink from this cup. Do come experience this cross. And by the way, when you do, you will be cut off. You will experience the wrath of God. And incredible, Adam fails. And by the way, we've repeated his failure over and over. And Jesus, the second Adam, succeeds. Where the first Adam fails. And he succeeds for us. Look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So here's my encouragement to you. As you meditate on this passage, consider the fact that you have a perfect model for prayer right here. Say, how should I pray? What should my prayers look like? They should probably look like Jesus' prayer. First of all, he appeals to God's sovereignty. You're in control. You're in charge. So therefore, I'm coming to you and I'm praying honestly. I'm asking for the cup to pass over. I'm asking if there's any way to avoid this hour, let's avoid it. He's praying honestly. He's not praying like a stoic. He's not praying emotionless. He's praying his tears. He's praying his fears. That's what Christian prayer looks like. That's what biblical prayer looks like. You're honest before God. You're crying out to him. Here's what's bothering me. Here's what's concerning me. And God wants you to come to him that way like a father. So he comes in this way, but notice also the faithfulness, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus did just sit and name it and claim it. Like, I claimed it, therefore it's going to happen the way I want it. Right? If Jesus didn't pray that way, we probably shouldn't pray that way. right? Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus puts the will of the Father, the, 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 the purpose of the Father before himself. In other words, this is what I want, but ultimately I want what you want. Um, Interestingly, the text doesn't tell us that Jesus was thinking of us in these final moments. It tells us he was thinking of the Father's will. I don't mean to suggest by that that he wasn't thinking of us. I'm just saying let's emphasize what the text emphasizes. And what does the text emphasize? He was driven by the will of the Father to stick with the plan, to drink the cup. So here's the point. The next time you pray pray like Jesus. He uh, he said, you're in control. Here's what I desire from you. Not what I will, but what you will. I want you to also notice we have Jesus provides us with a model, not just for praying. He provides us with a model for suffering. He provides us with a model for persevering. He provides us with a model for facing temptation. So you can use this example, this model for all kinds of things. So learn how to take this passage, meditate on it, and follow the example of Jesus. But whatever you do, don't miss the main point. Jesus is not merely providing an example for us. Jesus is succeeding where we've failed. He's succeeding where Adam failed. He is succeeding where we've all failed. And He's doing it for our good and for God's glory. And this is why the passage ends the way it does in verse 41. Look at verse 41 with me. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus says, guys, the hour has come. It's time. He's willing to be handed over. He's willing to be handed over to sinners. Even sinners who can't stay awake for Him, He's willing to be handed over to sinners, for sinners. He's faithful even when we are not. Therefore, here's my encouragement to you. Trust in Jesus. If you've never trusted him before, start trusting him. Why not? What are you waiting for? Look at how faithful he is for you. If you are trusting in Jesus and you say, I have been, wonderful. Keep trusting in Jesus. He's faithful even when we are not. God is in control. Jesus' followers are weak, but he is faithful. Let's pray.